What you're about to hear are Black women reciting the words of Megan the Stallion. In the weeks leading up to the election, Black women are expected to once again deliver a victory for Democratic candidates. We've gone from being unable to vote legally to a highly courted voter block, all in a little more than a century. It's ridiculous that some people think the simple phrase, protect Black women, is controversial. We deserve to be protected as human beings, and we are entitled to our anger about a laundry list of mistreatment and neglect that we suffer. Wouldn't it be nice if black girls weren't inundated with negative sexist comments about black women if they were told instead of the many important things that we've achieved? Black women are not naive. We know that after the last ballot is cast and the vote is tallied, we are likely to go back to fighting for ourselves. Because, at least for now, that's all we have. Megan the Stallion wrote these words as part of an opinion piece for the New York Times, and her words leapt off the page for me. There's something about hearing the voices of Black women reading it, too. Here's a truth. Black women are by and large on the front lines of the political fight for democracy. Last year, we saw a record number of Black women serving in Congress, and there's data that shows Black, Brown, and Indigenous women are in the trenches as political activists, volunteers, and everyday people mobilizing Americans to get out and vote. I'm talking about all of this with Farai Chidea. She's an award-winning journalist who knows both personally and professionally why Black women show up each and every time, and in this moment, what's at stake for all of us. And we're also going to explore what freedom feels like with Jasmine Moore, who says sometimes it's tying up her roller skates and letting the wind hit her face. Roller skating is proof that I can take up space and do it happily. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. Dear truth be told. I really need your help. I need your help. I need your help. I'm Tanya Mosley, and that's what we're taking on on this episode of Truth Be Told. We'll be right back. We have three facilitators to assist our audience members with their questions. From Oxygen Media and editor of popandpolitics.com, Parai Shadea, the senior anchor. Back in 2000, I was a newbie television producer working overnights at this small TV station in Saginaw, Michigan. And I had this little TV at my desk where I'd get all of the raw feeds of national reports. And one night, I saw a report come through that felt like a lightning strike. This dynamic black woman, with braids no less, was covering the presidential contest between George W. Bush and Al Gore, and I was glued to the screen. Mr. Vice President, just to follow up briefly on the issue of campaign finance, uh, your campaign emailed Governor George W. Bush's essentially pledging a ceasefire and issue-based attack ads. And that then, woman was Farai uh, Chidea. And as you can hear from that C-SPAN clip, she was in it. I mean, she's been covering presidential elections for more than 20 years now along with almost every major story you can think of. And she's got a new radio show called Our Body Politic, which takes on complicated but vitally important questions like, how do we collectively rebuild America in ways that nourish us and our communities? Farai Chidea, welcome to Truth Be Told, and congratulations on your new show. 
Tanya, thank you so much. I just love your show. I was listening to the show on Black men's mental health, and it just really touched me. Mm. So many topics that you do are ones that that I don't hear anywhere else, and I just want to give you props for that. But you know, you were 2020 way back in 2000. <laughs> I mean, meaning your ideas and right solutions that you're proposing today uh, to improve journalism and political coverage. You were talking about these things back then. I can imagine it's bittersweet. There's definitely been a lot of bitter as well as the sweet. You know, if people go to my Twitter feed, I have a pinned tweet talking about the blatant employment discrimination I faced throughout my career. And that's not even a comprehensive list. It's like the greatest hits. And so one of the things Mm -hmm. I think people need to understand is that America is poorer intellectually and sociopolitically for having uh, censored and excluded the voices of Black Latino, Latina, and other people of color. You know, it's it's just mm-hmm. we we have to recognize that the act of truth telling is an act of everyone bringing to the table their gifts and then fighting about how we write the first draft of history. It can't be told by any mm. one group or any one person. Mm. Okay, let's talk about your new show, Our Body Politic, which focuses on what you call the super demographic in American politics. And that's us. That's right. Women of color. You say that this is a show about harnessing our collective wisdom to help co-create a future we want to live in. Say more. Yeah, you know, I was just um, today at the hairdresser because that's what we do, even in a pandemic. She's extremely safe, only allows two clients in at a time. But my hairdresser is an immigrant from Guyana. And after I really got to know her, She would talk about the SUSU she was a part of, which is a trust-based saving system used by West Indians, West Africans, many other groups of people. I got her to let me join her SUSU, and it was great. And today we were talking about all these scams because so many black and brown people are broke. And so, Hmm. you know, I'm really ear to the ground about where big issues like PPP loans not going to people like my hairdresser. 90% of Black businesses could not get the PPP loans. How does that connect to ways that we can be smart? You know, it's all about connecting all the different levels of wisdom, data, science, word on the street. You know, that's how you learn. When you say the super demographic, what do you mean? So people who are Latino and or non-white are 37% of America. And obviously, women are half of that 37%, um, or not quite half. There are children involved. (laughs) But um, Black women in particular are basically super voters. We show up. We turn up. Some other groups of women of color, for very different and various reasons, don't vote at the same level as Black women. Um, I think Black women have a specific place in politics, but all women of color are people who can tip elections. And as different as we are, we are all people who tend to get undervalued by the political system, not hired as strategists, not given the advertising contracts to reach out to voters. And so one of the things I'm very aware about that we'll be talking about on Our Body Politic is that women of color are a very diverse group, which is why I say not just a demographic, but a super demographic, but we're pretty poorly marketed to and pretty poorly understood compared to our political power. Women of color are the secret sauce. 
We are the roux in the American gumbo. We are not just the parsley on the side of the plate. We are the base of the plate. And we need to be understood as such. And you know where I, I actually saw that? I covered the primary in South Carolina right before we went into lockdown. And in every city and town we visited, there were these Black women canvassing. It was really amazing to see. And it wasn't really surprising. I mean, Joe Biden will tell you that it turned the tide for him. South Carolina turned the tide for him. And it was Black women all across the state in the streets doing that work so that he could win the primary. Yeah, I covered the South Carolina primary in 2016. And not only are Black women the secret sauce, I would argue Black women over 70 are the secret, secret sauce. Yeah. The <laughs> church are, ladies. You were so right. They will be like yes. calling you up and harassing you. Hey, sister, I just wanted That's to right. check on you. Are you voting? You know, and, and it's yeah. like, I just want to give praise to all of the women who are, as my neighbor puts it, vintage, uh, not necessarily mm. elder. They may not identify with that, but the vintage Black women who really make things happen. What you're talking about here, though, is applied knowledge based on life experience that we just undervalue in this culture. Absolutely. I mean, we undervalue some people's life experiences and other people's yes. we perhaps overvalue. One of the things I've written about is the, um, the fictitious we. When Kate Spade died, which was a tragedy mm. because she took her own life, mm. the New York Times wrote a fake we story like, it's a rite of passage for women to get a Kate Spade handbag. And I tweeted about that. And one woman said, yeah, you know, like, I'm Jewish from New Jersey, but I worked minimum wage. And there was no such thing as a Kate Spade handbag being my rite of passage. Mm. It's not even just about black and brown. Mm. It's about class. It's about experience. And I think that the upper middle class white fake we has dominated the news. And I say that with, you know, some of my best friends are upper middle class white people, you know? And mm -hmm. so it's not about, it's just yeah. like, it's the reality. And so I think that being a black woman means that very often you are disabused of the notion of creating fake we's because you see them being used in ways that don't apply to your life. And you learn to make distinctions. Like I make distinctions mm -hmm. between different types of Trump voters who I covered in the last election from the road, many different types with different motivations mm -hmm. for voting for him. And I'm not into a fake we about Trump voters, you know, or fake they yes. um, as right. much as just trying to make distinctions based on being a journalist. So what you're saying makes me think about two things that um, Ai Jin Pu, the co-founder of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, said that there are two truths. There's what's factually true, and then there's what's emotionally true. And that now, in a deeply profound way, we're all understanding that perhaps the most important project is changing hearts, and that in order to do so, you have to be unafraid of the irrational. Absolutely. That really stuck with me. I mean, I, I'm really moved by that because it's so true. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think um, as a journalist and as a human being and as a longtime political analyst, I've been really struck by how many people did not get that we were in a culture war. People's decision making was not based on logic. It was based on cultural affiliations and the call to inclusion. I like to think of elections as this great pageant of national belonging. And in a country this divided, people choose what kind of political 
affiliation they belong to, and they will follow that sense of belonging off the cliff of logic. And as journalists, we also have to understand that part of the story is not just unpacking the literal truths, which is very important, but understanding why people feel affiliations to different things. And so that gets back to the I Gen Poo thing about heart. It's like if we can understand why people's hearts are motivating them to act in a certain way, we become more able, I think, as journalists to tell the story of America and the world, and we become more able as citizens, citizens or residents, to have compassion. And so I've spent years covering um, white nationalists, and I certainly don't agree with them, but I think I have a certain understanding of them and why they feel strongly. One person talked about joining the Aryan Nation, a woman, this was for some of my early reporting, and saying it was her family and that she was from a very wealthy, privileged family who she felt was like kind of neglectful emotionally neglectful. And she became part of the Aryan nation to find her new family, her chosen family. Who can't understand a story of chosen family? For some people, it means joining a political movement like Black Lives Matter or, you know, LGBTQ movements. You can judge the value of the different communities, but the urge to be part of something is a human urge. I think that we still have to fight for some kind of shared truth. That's really the promise yeah. of of news is to help create a shared truth. And we don't really have one right now as a society. And it's threatening democracy. It's threatening democracy. I mean, if there's no shared yeah. truth, how do you have a civilization? How yeah. do you have a society? Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, you've actually called it a train crash and derailment with people without privilege on the front of the train. Say more about this train, yeah. I think is what you're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so many people I know who are more privileged are only now catching up to the fact, and I consider it a fact, not an opinion, that American democracy could cease to be something as we know it and something as we've expected it. Especially for Black Americans and women, American democracy has never quite lived up to its promise, but it's still, as someone who's been to 30 plus countries, we still Mm. have certain things that we can expect from this country, even Mm -hmm. in a time this tragic, but it may not always be true. So even as I critique the U.S. and even as I critique the news media, I want us to understand that we have something that is worth preserving, protecting, and making better. And um, I think that the people at the front of the train who are people like the people in my building in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where I am now, who are essential workers, they've been Mm -hmm. under fire for years in the American economy in a gentrifying, still majority Black neighborhood where basically the, you know, I'm what I call in some ways a brown gentrifier. You know, I moved here with my fancy college degree and my white collar job. And a lot of my neighbors are working retail, they're home health aides. And five people died in my building in the first month of the pandemic Mm. alone. So um, Mm. people like my working income neighbors knew that we had hit a wall in America. And then people like me, who had more privilege, but still had a proximity to lots of people without privilege. And then there's other people who are just like, wait, what? What's happening? We could lose democracy as we know it. And it's just like, yeah, dude. Yeah, we could. And I can't, Mm -hmm. rather than whine about the people who are just getting the memo, it's like, now's the time to step up. 
even though the memo about the train derailment took a while to reach you, let's all be out saving lives. Like, let's all do it. What do you think is missing right now in the public discourse around politics and the presidential election? One of the biggest things I think is missing from the political discourse is history. You can't understand where we are in America today without understanding that in the modern era, only segregationist candidates who were independents got electoral college votes. No other candidates, not even people who got close to 20% of the vote, too many people in too many states. So when you say, oh, I'm so shocked that racial rhetoric has such an impact, look at Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who I interviewed in 2010, and Mm. how he won elected office for 26 years, in part by repressing the civil rights of Latinos. Look at how segregationists could win electoral college votes when other independents couldn't. If you don't know that history, you won't understand why we are where we are. And also, um, there's what I call the psychic privacy fence, which is people only hanging out with people that are like them. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, you know what? How you live is not the only way to live. And if you don't understand how other people live, you're never going to understand America. Um, I'm a big fan of data and also critical of data. Like polling about women of color is atrocious for the most part. Exactly. Particularly yeah. for certain groups like Asian Americans and Indigenous Americans. Indigenous Americans are a vital part of American life, but are not quantified as such. Yeah. You know, so so things like that. Like when you look at a poll, do you understand why people of color are or are not quantified well by that poll? Those questions are not being asked. I mean, it's the number one thing that I think a lot of the public, it's why there's so much confusion, too. When we have these polls and and we go through the numbers, but we can't understand them in the context of what's happening in real life. Like, okay, this poll is telling us one thing, but my day-to-day is telling me something else. We're seeing people in the streets right now. Like, that's not being reflected. Absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, I don't want to sound totally like a Debbie Downer. I do think that there's a lot of wisdom in this country. So I always try to spend time with elders. You know, I have several friends over the age of 90. And I'm blessed to know them. You do? Yeah. yeah. One of them I just talked to the other day, Mrs. Louise Sims, who was my high school English teacher. She helped desegregate two different schools, you know, in terms of uh, acting as a parent in one case and an educator in the other. She taught me and my colleagues to be fierce, independent-minded people. And um, mm. she's been married for 70 years. So she also is someone who understands love. And so it's people like Mm -hmm. that who I look to, to fill my soul and fill my mind and fill my heart. So if you Mm -hmm. don't have any elders in your life, go make some friends who are elders. And if you're an elder, find some people who are younger to befriend you. You are needed. Yeah, that's such good advice. It really is. Because I think many of us who are blessed to have elders in our families, it's more than that. We can have elders as friends too. There's so much that comes with that. I knew that I was winning when Mrs. Sims said, call me Louise. I was like, ooh, I'm a grown-up now. I know she went from being your teacher to now being a friend, a bona fide friend. Yeah. How are you feeling, though, as as we head into the election? I mean, are you feeling exhausted, exhilarated, nervous? I'm feeling 
not as informed as I'd like to be about the heart and soul of America. You know, I still primarily, not out I'm, not out, I'm not on the road. You know, I've been on the road mm-hmm. for the pandemic going to the woods and hanging out with friends. But I got a much better sense of America from field reporting last time where I was extensively on the road than from any secondhand reports or polling. And mm-hmm. I do feel um, a little disconnected from how different demographics of people are making choices. But I miss it. And I also don't miss it. I don't miss the feeling of going to bed at night in a hotel room after spending a day being sometimes sexually harassed or racially harassed. I don't miss that. I like going Mm. to bed on my own pillow, but I miss the feeling of knowing what America is feeling. And I don't have that sense now. You know, we ask every guest who joins us about what's bringing them joy in the moment. And what's bringing you joy right now? One of the things bringing me joy that would not have been possible at this time in this way without the pandemic is the chance to spend more time near my family. I'm going to relocate to Maryland for the first time since I was a teenager. And uh, not permanently, but for a while and see my mother and my other family. And I'm really excited about that. I was just visiting my mother the other week and I want to tape oral histories with her. She has many adventures, including being in the Peace Corps in the early 60s in Morocco with her sassy female friends, riding their mopeds, you know? <laughs> Black women and women of color have been having adventures forever. Of course. Yeah, so I just feel like I'm grateful for the chance to spend more time around family and also to have spent time with friends earlier in the pandemic. I also want to know your secret, Farai, because I almost feel like I need to find an old video of you from 2000, how you look exactly the same. <laughs> I don't even know how it's possible. Your parents also gave you good Yeah, genes. I can't claim anything for that because I, I literally like, I don't use moisturizer and I claim nothing except Shut except up. my fams, <laughs> except my fams. And living your truth. Yeah, that's true. We can't say enough about that, Can I just that, say, honestly. though, I have really been in my resentments sometimes, like racial resentments, resentments about mm. past injustices that have affected me and my family. And I'm actually processing a lot of stuff right now, like I, I think a lot of people are, because I don't want to live in resentment. I want to live in abundance and opportunity. A lot of times when people say stuff like that, you're like, "Ugh, you mean you want to forget the past? It's like, no. My family has set up an account on Ancestry. So there is the death record of my grandmother's grandfather, James Porter Montague. He died at 91. He was born during slavery in Virginia. And as far as we can tell, was raised by a white father who sold his enslaved mother downriver when he was nine years old. Mm. And this is a man Mm -hmm. who saw it all and died with many children Mm -hmm. and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And... What were his resentments? You know, I want to know how he felt about Mm. having come up the way he did and being a land-owning Black man who was literate and had literate children, including a son who became a doctor, you know, um, but who was never treated, I'm sure, with the amount of dignity he deserved. I think a lot about people who I will never meet in my ancestral line. You know, um, mm. and then I try to process my own resentments so that I can keep doing the work without that on my back. Well, I feel like so much of what you're doing now is 
is that? I mean, when you say you're feeling a lot of resentment right now, I feel it. I feel it from you. I actually feel it from myself, but I want to talk about you specifically because I want you to know that all of this sharing that you're doing is so healing for all of us. Thank you. I mean, I've been following your career for 20 years. I know how dynamic you are. I know how much we lost out by news leaders discounting you. But I also know the amazing journalism that you've done. And so as I read your accounts of what has happened to you over the course of your career, I think about, wow, and she was still able to be the boss. She was still able to do, no, you were able to do journalism in a way that really changed the hearts and minds of Americans. And really set the course for many journalists like myself. Oh, thank I mean, you. I was already on that path. I was already doing it, but it was seeing you, Farai. Oh, Tanya, that is so sweet. You know, make me cry on air. And I, and I, you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Even five years ago, I would not have accepted what you said, but I accept it now with gratitude. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who is uh, Ugandan American. And she said, when you turn down a compliment, it's like refusing a gift. And so it's been profoundly oh, uncomfortable right. for me to hear compliments, but I've learned to accept them because it refills the well. And the well gets pretty dry sometimes, I'll tell you. Well, thank you, Farai. Thank you, Tanya. And thank you for this conversation. I have enjoyed it from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. And I appreciate you. That's Farai Chidea, host of the new show, Our Body Politic. You know, a woman asserting her freedom is an act of resistance. And for Jasmine Moore, roller skating is an expression of that freedom. Every time her skates hit the ground and she propels her body forward, Jasmine is experiencing joy, the ultimate step towards liberation. My name is Jasmine Moore. I'm 21 years old and I'm a roller skater. I love skating because it's liberating. It's the closest I'll feel to flying and I feel like that's really cliche to say but when I put my skates on I really feel like I can just take off and go wherever whether that be putting on my earphones and just going to my own world and whatever song I'm listening to or if I'm at the skate park dropping into a bowl or going down ramps it's just really something that has tested my ability to progress and to learn It really came at a time where I felt lost. My anxiety and depression were consuming me. My job and school were consuming me, and I felt like I didn't know where to turn. So being able to lace up my skates and just put on a song that I really liked when I was feeling down was something that as I did it every day, I realized that, you know, my smile got a little bit bigger or my thoughts got a little bit clearer and roller skating definitely saved my life. Back in like the 60s and 70s when roller skating was a huge part of black liberation and fashion and culture and existence, That was a way for Black people to feel like they could get away from the pressures of white mainstream society. And a lot of the times in rinks, there would be rules that would 
keep black skaters from being who they wanted to be in a space where they thought they could truly be themselves. So I feel the intersection between politics and roller skating is that roller skating is almost seen to be a political act of showing joy. I become exhausted of, you know, essentially having to explain my humanity and my livelihood and my existence to people who still deny that Black Lives Matter. My existence roller skating is proof that I can take up space and do it happily. Roller skating has a duality of being a force for change, but also being a force for rest. At the end of the day, we only have one life to live. And being able to live your life to the fullest is what I want people to see when they see my beaming smile or when they see me move my hips or, you know, throw my hands up in the air. I want them to see that even for those 30 seconds, that moment of being carefree will last forever to me. Jasmine Moore's story came to us from my homie and former Truth Be Told producer, Christina Kim. And, you know, I'm still trying to find my thing like Jasmine during these times. I keep looking at those running shoes like one day, one day soon. But I want to hear from you. What's your liberating pastime? What's bringing your smile and sense of power back? At me on Twitter at Tanya Mosley or Truth Be Told KQED. You can also drop us a line at 415-553-2802. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And as always, a big thanks to Kiana Mogadam. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.